If you have Bibles, we'll invite you to open them to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. This is the New Revised Standard Version. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that live throughout the earth, may you have abundant prosperity. The signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me, I'm pleased to recount. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his sovereignty is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that frightened me. My fantasies in bed and the visions of my head terrified me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me in order that they might tell me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and I told them the dream, but they could not tell me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and who is endowed with a spirit of the holy gods, and I told him the dream. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that you are endowed with a spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Hear the dream that I saw, tell me its interpretation. Upon my bed this is what I saw. There was a tree at the center of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew great and strong, its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it provided food for all. The animals of the field found shade under it. The birds of the air nested in its branches, and from it all living beings were fed. I continued looking in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, Cut down the tree and chop off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from beneath it and the birds from its branches, but leave its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let him be bathed with the dew of heaven. Let his lot be with the animals of the field in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let the mind of an animal be given to him and let seven times pass over him. The sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers. The decision is given by order of the holy ones in order that all who live may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. He gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of human beings. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are unable to tell me the interpretation. You are able, however, for you are endowed with the spirit of the holy gods. Then Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar, was severely distressed for a while. His thoughts terrified him. The king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or the interpretation terrify you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree that you saw, which, is, which, is, which grew great and strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which provided food for all, under which animals of the field lived, and in whose branches the birds of the air had nests, it is you, O king. You have grown great and strong. Your greatness has increased and reaches to heaven, and your sovereignty to the ends of the earth." And whereas the king saw a holy watcher coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze in the grass of the field, and let him be bathed with the dew of heaven, and let his lot be with the animals of the field until seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and it is a decree of the Most High that has come upon my lord the king. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen, 
You shall be bathed with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you until you've learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. As it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be reestablished for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said, Is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the animals of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society, ate grass like oxen, and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails became like birds' claws. When that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored the one who lives forever, for his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my lords sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are truth, and his ways are justice, and he's able to bring low those who walk in pride. As we begin today, we have to remember, Nebuchadnezzar is not presented in the book of Daniel as simply an example of a prideful person. He certainly is a prideful person, but that's not the example he is meant to represent. Nebuchadnezzar was king of the most powerful nation to rule the earth at the time, at least in the area of Israel where the Bible is concerned. For Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar represents the kingdom of Babylon, and in many ways, Nebuchadnezzar is the personification of the Babylonian people. So this story is not primarily about the way in which God responds to an arrogant human being. This story is presented to us as a, confirma- as a confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the earth, between God on high and human nations. We'll talk about God's judgment on nations because that is what chapter 4 is about. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 14 says, If a king judges the poor with equity, his throne will be established forever. We want to keep that in our mind. What does God expect from the nations of the earth? By what criteria does he judge them? What does his judgment look like? If a king judges the poor with equity, his throne will be established forever. Sounds something like we heard in the book of James, right? Religion that our Father sees as pure and faultless is caring for widows and orphans and keeping oneself unpolluted from the world. Sounds similar. We'll keep that in our minds. As we consider God's judgment on the nation of Babylon today, we'll consider the kingdoms and nations of the earth in terms of their human being leaders, 
their spiritual being leaders. And three, God's sovereignty over these nations. And then we'll conclude with a reflection on the primary way in which the kingdom of God is to be distinguished from the kingdoms of the earth. How we can tell when we're hearing from God or when we're hearing from humans or spiritual forces of evil, either way. Let's start first with the human being leaders of the kingdoms of the earth. Now this is, comes from Daniel uh, 49, uh, uh, Daniel chapter 4, really the whole chapter, but I'm just going to look at verse 29 and 30. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said, Is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? The people of the earth are enamored. They are consumed with the idea of building the kingdom of God on earth. It was a project that began after the great flood in Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and it's never really ended. In the, in the age of enlightenment in Europe, they called it the search for utopia. In many ways, it's a desire to return to Eden by way of the tree of knowledge. If we can just get enough technology, if we can just get enough armies, if we can just learn enough skills, if we can just get enough infrastructure, then we will certainly establish a kingdom just as good as Eden might have been, maybe even better, and we'll do it by our own wits and by our own strength. That's the challenge, the desire of every nation builder in the history of humanity. It's a desire expressed in our own constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States. It's the same desire. At our best, we want to please God and build something on earth that might approximate his will and desire for the people of the earth. At the best, that's what we're aiming at. At our worst, we wish to build a monument to our greatness and to our, achievement, our achievements. Our achievements of human wisdom, of goodness, of clairvoyance, of technological skill, and of superior intellect. And this is what pleased King Nebuchadnezzar. This is what he was talking about. As he was walking on the portico, he saw the nation he had built. And as far as his eyes could see, it was perfect. Look at what I have done. Look what I stand atop. Eden reborn. Babel realized we are the greatest that has ever been. That, those were his words. And we heard what God said through Daniel when we read it. But this same story is given a prophetic flair in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. If you have Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. It's a passage we most likely in the church associate with Satan. But in its context, it is about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And you can see how it dovetails with this story. All of Isaiah, chapter 14, really is relevant. I'm just going to read verses 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven. O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Zephon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Isaiah was talking about Nebuchadnezzar there. 
Now, when I say that, you might be thinking, are you implying that it's evil to try and establish the values of God on earth? That it's evil to try and get laws passed that approximate what God wants in the world? Are you trying to say that's evil? Isn't that what Israel was tasked with doing? Weren't they supposed to bring a piece of the kingdom of God to earth by establishing the law of Moses and building a national polity and living according to God's law? I mean, isn't that what their task was? It's not wrong if God asks you to do it. But it is wrong to do this independent of God and of his Messiah. It is wrong to do this independent of God and of his Messiah. In the vision God cast for Israel, all the nations of the earth would accept Israel as the first among the nations. That's what he gave Israel. Babylon was in rebellion against this truth. Now Babylon had come in and conquered Israel because God had sent them, but they ruled over Israel because they thought they were more powerful than Israel. But this was only a shadow. Israel was only a shadow of the reality that was coming in Jesus. Now, in the wake of Jesus, it is sinful to attempt to bring the kingdom of God to earth independently of Jesus. Now that the Messiah has come, it is sinful to attempt to bring the kingdom of God to earth independently of Jesus. Jesus defines the kingdom. He defines its ethics. He defines its leadership. And he defines its shape. But this desire to set up a kingdom of God on earth that approximates God's values but does it without Jesus as Lord is a desire not only of human beings. It's a desire shared also by spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We humans are not only driven in this direction by our own ambitions, but also by the ambitions of spiritual beings who are in rebellion against God. The kingdoms of the earth and their spiritual leaders is point two. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 13. I continued looking in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, Cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from beneath it and the birds from its branches, but leave its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let him be bathed with the dew of heaven and let his lot be with the animals of the field in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let the mind of an animal be given to him and let seven times pass over him. Listen closely. The sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers. The decision is given by order of the holy ones, in order that all who live may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. He gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of human beings. When Nebuchadnezzar has these visions, he sees that they are enacted by watchers and holy ones. They're part of God's divine counsel. These are the holy ones. But not all who were part of God's divine counsel are still leading in submission to him. Behind the nation-building desires of the people of the earth are spiritual beings who are in rebellion against God and against his Messiah, Jesus. When God judges a nation, he judges not only their, spirit, their human leaders, but their spiritual leaders as well. This will become a theme in the book of Daniel. And this reality is encapsulated in the psalm that we've looked at together before, Psalm 82. 
says this, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, in the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. So what we have here at the beginning of the psalm is a picture of God gathering his council and being prepared to pronounce judgment. Judgment on whom? Well, we'll find out. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak. Now, we hear what God's saying, but we don't know to whom he's saying it yet. But we hear what he's saying. He's judging. Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now we find out to whom he's speaking. I say you are gods, Elohim. Children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Psalm 82 gives us a picture of when God brings judgment on human nations, he's also called his counsel to declare judgment on their spiritual leaders. At Babel, we talked about this before, according to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, God assigned the nations to lesser members of his divine counsel, and many of them have joined rebellion against God. And God is judging them. It's not only human societies, but the spiritual forces behind them. And that's why Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Not all of our ideas or our ambitions are sourced in humanity itself. Not all the thoughts you have are yours. Not all the impulses or desires that drive us are sourced in us. There's enough source in us. Evil is in our heart, but it's not all there. In many ways, those who seek the kingdom of God apart from Jesus, apart from his teachings, apart from his example, apart from his authority, align themselves with the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms who are also in rebellion against God and against his Messiah. As we see in Isaiah 14, in judging Nebuchadnezzar, God is also judging the spiritual being or the spiritual beings which superintend the nation of Babylon. There's far more at stake in world politics than simply human wrangling and ambition, and we ignore this reality to our great peril. Finally, the kingdoms of the earth, let's think of God's sovereignty over them. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven away from human society and your dwelling shall be with the animals of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. Just as God humbled both the human leaders and the spiritual leaders, the gods of Egypt, during the events of the Exodus, so he humbled both Nebuchadnezzar and the spiritual leaders of Babylon. And in this act, God has demonstrated that despite his long years of patience with the kingdoms of the earth and their rebellious desire to build a kingdom of God apart from God's law and apart from his Messiah, he will act in history to establish his sovereignty in time. And we see that in Nebuchadnezzar. Paul tried to explain this to the great philosophers of the Greek city of Athens in Acts chapter 17. This is what Paul said. Acts chapter 17, verse 22 then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath in all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. The kingdoms of the earth have searched for God's benefits, but not for God. They are not seeking God's kingdom. They are simply seeking the benefits of that kingdom so they can rule it themselves. What kingdom is there on earth who has taken the teachings, the example, and authority of Jesus as sufficient, who needed no other law but the law given to us by Jesus and by God? What nation has ever done it? None. All nations have tried, who have heard of Jesus, have tried to incorporate Jesus into their idea of an ideal society, blending Jesus with their own ideologies. And this is rebellion. God is merciful. He allows it. He even works through it in seasons of history. But it is still rebellion. And God has established the beginning and end of every kingdom. And when time is up, he will act. Well, what then is the difference between these human kingdoms who are trying to bring truth and justice to earth under their own authority and the kingdom of God? How would we know the difference? What is the teaching of Jesus and what is the teaching of men and women? Our final point is the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 9, we're going to be in verse 33. This is Jesus' response to his disciples when they're thinking about who has the authority on earth. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Then they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. The reason they did that is because Jesus told them he was going to die. And when you hear the leader's going to die, what's your first thought? Who takes over? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me but the one who sent me. And what is implicit in this conversation is that children are the lowest rung of society at the time. By welcoming a child, you do not benefit yourself in any way because children have no status. So to invite a child is to welcome someone that does you no earthly benefit. There's no benefit to that. There's no status benefit. There's no prestige benefit. What he means is you need to serve the lowliest, not just the wealthiest. You need to welcome all comers, not just the ones who will do you good. You need to be the least of all in the room, not the head. You need to be the servant. This is the kingdom of God, and it's what leadership looks like. As much as many kingdoms of the earth particularly in the remains of the Roman Empire, have respected Jesus and his example. Their rebellion is constant and clear. 
any religion, any kingdom, any nation that speaks of being first is in rebellion against Jesus. Any religious institution, any kingdom, any nation that speaks of power or might or greatness, who argues with the disciples who will be the greatest, is in rebellion against Jesus. Any religious institution, any kingdom, any nation that establishes ethics and values that run contrary to the teachings of Jesus as preserved by the prophets of Israel and the apostles of Jesus is in rebellion against Jesus. Jesus defeated these powers, not with a sword, but on the cross. And there's no better way to describe the way Jesus conquers than Paul's summary of that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and following. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. What does that mean? The true kingdom of God is one in which the people control themselves and master the wickedness in their own hearts by the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of God's Holy Spirit at work within us. Notice the difference. The kingdoms of the earth and all those who are aligned with their spiritual powers seek to control others by pressure of law. And in order to do that, that requires them to have power over others. That's what the disciples thought Jesus wanted the kingdom to be. That's why they were trying to decide who was the greatest. Who's going to run this thing? Who's going to force the people to obey? Who's going to make sure that they don't rebel? Who's going to enforce this thing? And Jesus says, you're in the wrong world, friend. The kingdoms of the earth seek to control others by pressure of law, and that requires them to have power over others. But the kingdom of God is a kingdom born of the heart. Jesus defeated the power of evil, not by defeating Rome, not by defeating the Pharisees, not by overcoming his enemies or getting just laws passed. He defeated evil by defeating it within himself. And you say, well, Jesus didn't have a sin nature. I know, but he became human to defeat sin within humanity. This is what he did, what Paul says. He became a curse. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes wickedness into himself and he doesn't defeat it out there. He defeats it in here. And that's the battle you're engaged in. But you live in a world in which we are told to have a righteous society, we must force people to be righteous by law, by protest, by pressure, by violence if necessary. But that doesn't work with the teachings of Jesus because your enemy is not outside. It's not outside your door. The enemy of the kingdom of God dwells within you. It is within you sin must be conquered and that is the cross.
And the enemy likes to keep our eyes on others. Because as long as we allow the wickedness of others to justify our own uncleanness, we will never be clean. Now, I believe we are in a season in which God is judging both the human leaders and the spiritual leaders of the earth. And if you listened carefully to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, you can hear that rhetoric in every nation, in every place. The kingdoms of the earth are full of their own pomp and circumstance, and they celebrate the power and authority they reign over other people, and how through that authority they can bring peace on the earth. That is the story of the world. It is the story of the devil. And it is the story of every kingdom that has ever reigned on earth, but it is not the way of Jesus. Just as God was delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, and he sent ten plagues on the Egyptians, I believe we are in a period of plagues. Something is coming. You and I must be ready. The kingdoms of the earth are being judged for their arrogance for their impudence, for their belief that they could bring the kingdom of God on earth without Jesus and without his Messiah, without his ethics or his values, that they could incorporate his teachings into their ideologies and make a better kingdom than Jesus ever dreamed of. And God is laying them low. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he is judging them for their arrogance. There is a word that I'd like to speak that's not to you but it's to the nations of the earth and to their spiritual leaders. Almost a year ago, some of you will remember that I screamed, let my people go. And all I felt in my heart at that time was that there was some kind of a force behind us that was feeding us these lies and disinformation. And all I wanted and all I've done for the last year is pray for you that you'd be freed from it. And on that day, it exploded out of me that I challenged it. But this day, the Lord is saying, I think, to all the nations of the earth and their spiritual leaders, that it is time to repent and return to Jesus. And if it does not happen, God will strike the infrastructure. Those who put their faith in God will be protected. Those who put their faith in other things will be left to those gods to be protected. You're at the beginning of it, but we are in this together. And God will guide us. You need no one but him.